0: At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email Campbell Reporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose. By reporting with purpose, We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year.
1: Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. My name is Hunter Cole, and in this episode, I sit down with Campbell Law professor Lucas Osborne. In light of the recent release of Professor Osborne's groundbreaking book on 3D Printing and Intellectual Property, we talk about the process of writing a book and about some of the substantive issues his book seeks to address. Whether you are considering writing a book or interested in the field of intellectual property. My discussion with Professor Osborne provides great advice in both aspects. Welcome, Professor Osborne.
0: Thank you very much.
1: I want to start by talking about just the book writing process in general, and then get into kind of a substantive discussion after that. What gave you the idea, or kind of prompted you to write this book?
0: So I had been doing research on 3D printing and IP, and had written two or three articles about it. And actually one of my mentors, at another school who's an IP professor suggested early on, when I was working on my very first project that, Hey, you could eventually spin this out and create a book out of it. So as I was writing the first two or three articles, I was investigating the process of how to write a book and how to do that process. And essentially there's a way that you draft a 10 to 20 page, Outline's not the right word, but chapter-by-chapter summary of what you plan to do with a book, and then you would send that out to the book publishers. The book publishers would look at that and decide whether they are interested or not. While I was kind of gearing up the nerve to do that, Cambridge University Press actually reached out to me and said, hey, we saw your two or three articles. Have you ever thought about writing a book? So at that Mm -hmm. point, I didn't have to send out the applications to all the book publishers because Cambridge is widely considered one of the top book publishers. So I just said, well, if they're interested, I'll submit to them and them only. And then you, you still prepare the 10 to 20 page summary. It goes to a review board there. And then they decided to accept it from that point. Very cool. So would you
1: say, is it pretty common for them to reach out to somebody like that? I don't
0: know if how common it is. I don't think historically it was very common. I think it might be becoming a little more common with a lot of articles being available on SSRN and other free websites for for publishers maybe to peruse and look at. But I I don't know.
1: In your goals about writing the book, did they kind of give you freelance to say, hey, you can write about what you want? Or did they kind of have a say? So what did you really try to achieve by writing it?
0: Well, a couple of things there. So what did I try to achieve? I wanted to put uh, both the research that I'd already done into a book format, but also expand on that. and, and, And the book allows you a lot more space and freedom to create overarching themes across different pieces of intellectual property in this case. So that's one thing I wanted to do. There's always more to write and more to say, but this gave me a format to say more than I already had. Second, in the Academy, publishing a book for right or for wrong is seen as something that's desirable and that's an achievement. And so it's sort of a a gold star kind of thing to be able to do that. So I wanted to sort of check that box as well, just for the challenge of it um, in some respects. And then as far as what the publisher said needed to be in it or not in it, I was somewhat constrained by the application that I sent in by that chapter outlines. Now, I didn't have to stay by that and did not stay by that word for word, but thematically and topically and and theoretically, that's all what guided the process. The only thing that they required, and this created quite a bit more work for me, or they encouraged, I guess you'd say, was for me to include a lot of other countries' laws and Mm. and more of an international flavor to it. And that's uh, quite a bit of a challenge. I mean, I'm roughly familiar with a lot of other countries' patent laws at a high level, but as you know, different states in the United States can read a a statute very differently and that issue only compounds when you're talking about international Mm. uh, research. Took a lot of extra time, but I think it made the book more valuable and it certainly opened my eyes to a lot of new issues and and created some new relationships for me, new friendships that I was able to meet through different conferences and collaborators that kind of helped me along the way.
1: So after you do this 10 or 20 page outliner, so what does the rest of the process look like after that? And also what's the most time consuming out of those?
0: So after you get accepted after they accept your proposal there's a proposed manuscript due date and the joke among everybody that i talked to is that nobody ever submits their manuscript on time and i said no i'll be the person who submits on time i'm very organized i'm very timely and then i did not submit on time in fact i was more than 2 years after the submission date but they were never worried about that the, the publisher i kept them in the loop they very much understood I had the visit to University of Denver come up. So that was very disruptive. I spent a year out in Denver and then working on the international aspects took extra time as well. So in the end, I did what everybody else said would happen. And I was late compared to the initial due date, but it doesn't create a problem. So the most time consuming part is just simply doing the research and the writing. No doubt about that. I was able to get a sabbatical from Campbell, which was mm-hmm. wonderful. So for the fall semester semester, Two years ago, I didn't have classes. I didn't have committee work, and I woke up. I worked on my book, and I, you know, then I stopped and had dinner and went to bed, and did the same thing over again for most of the summer, as well as that whole fall. So about probably four or five solid months of just writing, reading, finalizing research, writing, and uh, just tweaking and, and massaging the book from that point forward.
1: So, do you think that you would have wrote the book or been able to if you? we're working at somewhere else like a, like a law firm or how did being a professor kind of provide you the flexibility to do that?
0: Yes, I could not, there may be people out there who can, but I need close to eight hours of sleep. <laughs> so there's no way I could do something like this. If I were at a law firm, especially the international research aspect, I mean, it, you really did have to discover research and teach yourself a lot of new law in a very short amount of time. I mean, four or five months sounds like a lot of time until you're trying to figure out what the English mean by this word or what the Germans mean by the German version of translated into this English word. And so it's quite challenging.
1: I can imagine even more. So with intellectual property, that's that's more challenging. What was your most favorite and least favorite part of just the whole writing process in general?
0: I think the, the most fun was doing the research as well as having the collaboration with so many people. So in a book like this, I mean, there's a bunch of people that I thank in the book because the the academic community is, is full of a lot of wonderful people who are very helpful. We read each other's work. We comment on each other's work. And, and not in the sense of proofreading that you have a typo here or there, but simply, have you thought about this? Have you seen this case? What about this counter argument? You know, all of those sorts of collaborations. And being able to do that both with colleagues and friends here in the United States and then making friendships and collaborating with people in Japan and in Europe and Canada was was really, really fun and really, really enlightening.
1: So I saw in in your author's comments, actually, you thanked a couple of law students as well. How much did they contribute and how would, if a law student wanted to help a professor or how did you pick those students or did they find you?
0: So the law students were wonderfully helpful. And for this particular work and the, the stage that I was at, the law students helped me in this case, primarily with footnoting. So these were not students who had taken intellectual property, let's say, or especially not experts necessarily in patent or, or anything that this book covered. They helped me with, you asked me the least favorite. And I never answered. The answer is the footnoting. Yeah. And, uh, it's just like when you're writing a law review article, That is the very tedious part. And these students helped me tremendously because they were on law review. They understood the format that needed to be done. And you're talking about 300 pages worth of footnotes. And they did an amazing job to help me stick to the deadline that I had reassigned for the work. And they helped me tremendously to be able to do that. So did you
1: choose them or did you kind of give like an open form like, hey, I could do some help on this or was it kind of a, how was that process?
0: I sent a request to the law editor in chief, okay. just because I knew the law Review, people on law Review would know how to do the footnoting and just said, if you know how to do footnoting and you're willing and able, here we go. And the school was able to provide some funding for research assistance and Eventually I hit that cap and I actually paid out of pocket, uh, wow. my own money for a little bit of the footnoting. So, because again, I, you know, I was sitting here finalizing the chapters, to, trying to proofread the the style and that sort of thing. And it was very happy to have other people help with the more tedious parts.
1: So kind of based off of that, I know you said it was some of the deadlines were a little difficult to meet. What was something unexpected that happened or that took you a lot longer than you expected?
0: A couple of things. I, again, I, it's it's a broad answer, but the international law, I can't overstate how much. When the, when they asked me to do that, I said, yeah, that's a great idea. I'll definitely do that. And <laughs> because of my previous work in the writing some of this content in law reviews, in those law review articles, I focused only on United States law. I could have written most of this book in a matter of a month or two because of that previous research and then just updating it and incorporating some new things. But the other four months were spent primarily on the international stuff and it takes you, you know, sometimes you have to read a hundred pages, about a particular foreign case or, or what have you to make one paragraph in a book, because you, as you know, I mean, you don't want to get, yeah, we think it, writing papers won't. is bad. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You don't want to, right. You, you want to make a point, but you need to make sure that you're making it right. You can't just check what one person said in Germany. You've got to check to make sure you've got to read the case. you got to find an English translation. You've got to think about it, research all around that to make sure that the point you're making is is actually made by that particular case or that particular law. So that was very challenging.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think the research you did is clearly, I mean, proven. So I kind of want to move on just a little bit. And I read some of the comments in the reviews that a lot of other professionals made about the book, and they said it's well regarded for its novel ideas and its first of its kind writing and things like that. So what advice would you give to other legal professionals, and maybe not just other professors who are considering writing a book?
0: If you're a practicing lawyer and you don't have a lot of free time, I would say, you know, be careful what you bite off because you want to find something that's manageable. But there's a lot of practicing lawyers that do like to write and they are able to write law review articles, for instance, which is an amazing accomplishment for an attorney who's engaged in the full-time practice of law. And there's plenty that write shorter things for blog posts and that sort of things. And all of those are all in the same genre. I mean, they're all important contributions, and they all make the writer as well as the reader think through the law better. And so, it's about finding blocks of time here and there to do it, and, and bite off whatever you can. So, if you're interested in starting, maybe you guest blog posts somewhere, or maybe your firm has its own blog, and then you can work your way up, perhaps to. A law review article, you combine five or six blog posts into a law review article. And then if that works, maybe you eventually want to combine all of that into a book. So that's certainly one way to go. Some practicing lawyers write books in technology areas I've seen occasionally that are not sort of the academic, heavily footnoted, heavily researched genre, and they're much more accessible to mm-hmm. a, a lay reader who's interested in a topic. And that's, that's something that other lawyers like op
1: hop at a newspaper almost. Right, <laughs> right. Okay. Because I can imagine just the thought of doing a book is very daunting, but actually getting started and in that initial step, I think you said, maybe you know, starting a blog post or just starting somewhere is really the key. It's, it's, you know, getting out almost a, a minimum viable product or just something out there that you can show to the world and get some comments on it. right? When I ventured into this book, I had absolutely no knowledge of uh, intellectual property and 3D printing. So I tried to verse myself somewhat in it, but how would you suggest that someone with like myself, no knowledge of intellectual property and 3D printing, how can they benefit from a book like this?
0: Yeah. So some of the chapters are designed for people who do not have intellectual property background or do not have a legal background. But I'm honest with people, if you have no legal background, it's going to be a slog to get through the entire book. Maybe that's not what somebody needs to do with this book if they don't have a legal background. But some of the early chapters are written at a much more sort of layperson tone. And then as you need the book for certain issues or certain issues pop up, then I think it makes sense to look at those chapters in more depth. And that would allow you to be able to converse with lawyers or technologists who are dealing in those areas. So the audience primarily is intellectual property attorneys, other academics, those sorts of things, but it is meant to be accessible to the 3D printing experts who know way more about the technology than I do. Uh, You know, I've got the technology summarized in here and some of the benefits and some of the things that need to happen before this technology sort of hits the mainstream in certain areas. But they are often interested in the intellectual property aspects because it comes up for them. And so the people who are already heavily involved in the 3D printing, they could take this book and have a much deeper appreciation for the intellectual property aspects that come up.
1: You mentioned just kind of before these things really start to take shape in the world, these these principles and things like that. One of the things that I found interesting, and I, got, I tried not to dive too deep in or get too overwhelmed with, but it was uh, you used the term physitization. Is that how you say it? Right. Okay. Physitization. And you said that this was the most fundamental impact of this technology of 3D printing and things like that. So without getting too substantive, is there a way that you could explain maybe how these effects will be shown to like the everyday person how will how will we see these effects like I guess it's you kind of compare it to um, digitization I think so how will we see that kind of take shape in in the media and things like that
0: right so I try to boil it down to one term that's, that captures what's different about this technology from other things and I think the easiest analogy to capture what's going on is digitization of music or movies right because we're very familiar with that and we are pretty comfortable with the challenges that come about once music and, and movies and books have been digitized once there's a digital file it's very easy to duplicate and then send that file you're actually not sending that file you're sending copies of the file to other people so the copies can proliferate costlessly and instantaneously without losing any degradation without degrading at all in in quality so now you take that same principle but you apply it to physical things hmm. so a coffee cup or a wrench or whatever that you can 3D print now also exists as a digital version, a digital file. And that file can be copied and sent around the globe and posted on the internet and those sorts of things. That file can also be opened up and manipulated and changed. And once you grasp that, that, okay, I can have a digital version and I can have a physical version and going back and forth between the physical and the digital is easy. It used to be impossible. Now it's much easier. It's not easy to the layperson necessarily but to somebody who wants to be experienced with 3d printing they can do that they can go back and forth from the physical to the digital through 3d scanning of tangible objects or just creating something in a computer program from scratch drawing it in essence i create the digital version and then i can print it to make the physical version and i can go back and forth and that to me is the key thing that people need to understand is to to then understand the disruption because now we have intellectual property laws like patent law that are geared toward physical objects. That's what we've had historically. So that's what the law has envisioned. And now we have digital versions of those objects. And the law has never thought of that, is not prepared for that. So that's where the the attention needs to be paid. How do we handle this?
1: Yeah, it almost just sounds like some futuristic movie or something that we can't yet, like it's it's hard for the layperson person just to kind of wrap their heads around that idea. So how much of this printing 3d printing and and the between the physical and the digital is going on and how much of that is going to be kind of when is that going to be a major shift forward towards that or if it's not already happening now
0: it is happening and the speed with which it will progress is the big question so there are when 3d printing started in the 1980s it was used for rapid prototyping so just making out of plastic, simple parts, or they don't necessarily have to be simple in the geometric sense, but prototypes so that I could see and touch and, and feel what I hope one day will be a final product. But they did not ever make final products with 3D printing in the early days. More and more final products are being manufactured using 3D printing. Obvious places to start where it's it's having a big effect right now are in low volume, but high engineering complexity situations so aviation rocketry Mm. those sorts of things because you don't make 10 million planes like you make 10 million cars and so when you have a lower volume of production those mass production costs that are spread over 100 parts 3d printing all of a sudden becomes much more cost effective and you can create very unique geometries that you never would be able to machine or otherwise do and so when you need really high performance parts 3D printing makes sense to come in and actually manufacture end products. And someday the cost may drop enough to where it's competitive with casting or injection molding or whatever the alternative processes are. But right now it's sort of incrementally gaining advantages. So you've got the software, you've got the 3D printers themselves, you've got the materials that you can print in. And all three of those facets are being improved over time. And as those improve, new areas come in where now 3D printing is the most cost-effective solution. So it's it's kind of an incremental thing.
1: And so I see this as a very almost niche area, and I can imagine the amount of math and engineering and science it takes to get into an area like this. So how much background knowledge, I mean, I guess I can see this being a very complicated area for, for lawyers just because of the, the science. You have to understand not only the science, but then how that applies to the law. So I guess could you just touch on that a little bit or how how a lawyer could even get that background knowledge where they have to have some kind of previous experience with that?
0: I don't think it's that challenging for an attorney to get into the basics of this. So in the end, you're still manufacturing physical products and those physical products are going to be covered by the law in the same way, regardless if they're 3D printed or injection molded or however they're manufactured. So in that sense, there's no magic or or confusion there. The harder questions come into how do you treat the digital files and how should the law treat them? How should you protect them if you're a company? What licensing provisions do you want if you're sharing these things? And there's analogies there. I don't have to understand how a 3D printer works just like I don't have to understand mm. how a microwave works. I can heat up my macaroni and cheese even though I don't have a clue how the microwave itself works.
1: Those are pretty much the the questions that I had about your book. You know. Lastly, we kind of concluding the show, we like to ask all of our guests before we end, in furtherance of Campbell's mission statement, what does it mean to you to lead with purpose?
0: In terms of writing 3D printing books? Just or in, 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 in general,
1: you can both. Yeah,
0: I, I think since we've been talking about scholarship this most of this time, I think of my scholarship as part of my leading with a purpose because we want to be thought leaders on the Campbell Law faculty and we want to impart that thirst and that desire for knowledge to our students. And so I see that as a direct extension of leading with a purpose because I believe, well, I know I enjoy writing. I believe I was put here in part to do writing and as well as to do the teaching. So I take this very seriously as a calling for myself, something that I'm equipped to do and something that I'm enabled to do and that I think improves the law incrementally. You know, Are a million, billion people going to read this book? No. But Does it contribute and help the law perhaps handle these things better? And in the end, make society a little better off. Yeah. So I like to do my part.
1: Very cool. So if people do want to get a hold of your book or have questions for you about it, how can they reach out to you and how could they get their hands on the book?
0: They can email me anytime they want. I'm always happy to talk about 3D printing and the book is available on Amazon. And so you just Google my name and 3D printing and IP and it'll pop up. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our channel, leave us a comment, and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Thank
0: you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform.